Hello and welcome to the Zen Den, the podcast channel that illuminates a genderless dialogue. I am your host, Dimitri Pinotis, and with me today is Dr. Angad Singh. Together, we unpack some personal anecdotes that delve into the beauty of interbeing and self-awareness. Angad Singh, welcome to the Zen Den, mate. It's beautiful to share this space with you. Hey, Timmy, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Mate, what's um, attracted me in asking you and sharing this space today is um, first and foremost your openness uh, to not only other people but, you know, situations in life and the ability to uh, go with the flow. It's something that I am uh, admire of you and, um, yeah, it's, it's great to have you here, mate. I don't know. I don't know if I describe myself in the same way, but I certainly appreciate the word. No, certainly appreciate that that description. Oh well, what makes you say that? I don't know. I think uh, I guess I don't think of myself in that way. Definitely, I I know that I go with the flow, but um, I guess perhaps that openness that you touched on is something that I think could increase. Mm. Mm. No, fair enough. Or what is there something that um that you do describe yourself as? Uh, I think forthright. Um, you know, I guess uh, I'm willing to try new experiences. I guess that that is similar to openness, um, and always want to learn more about myself. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You touched on experience. Is there anything in particular that comes to mind when you say that? Uh, the, I guess there's been a few key experiences through my life. The, uh, perhaps the most important of which was when I went to Peru a few years ago, 2018, and worked with Ayahuasca a few times. Um, and I think that that probably put me on a trajectory where I was drawn to other experiences which have, in the way that I see things, developed my self-awareness. Interesting. Interesting. Do you mind unpacking that experience? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, in 2018, I was at a place in my life where I'd been working for two years as a doctor. Um, never really wanted to study medicine but it was something that was decided for me by my parents. And I didn't really know which direction my life was going, and I was not depressed but discontent um, and was stuck in my mind. didn't know who was me and what was my ego. Um, I found that space, you know, a place of misery when you're someone that um, you know, has big ideas, you know, big hopes for themselves or sets big goals for themselves or wants to make big influences on other people's lives. Um, so I guess that took me to Peru, um, where I worked with ayahuasca seven times, um, over 12 days. Um, and that was an enlightening experience. It was so enriching to my state of being to the way that I saw the world that I think I will forever be grateful. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, from the outside, um, 
you know, you hear a few things about ayahuasca and I guess more commonly known as DMT. Um, and it's a crazy realm, man. It, it really is just from the outside. But, you know, obviously for yourself, somebody who's um, experienced that, is there a particular sort of day or session or that, you know, really stood out to you and, and why is that? Mm-hmm. There, there is. Before I touch on that, I guess it's important to um, differentiate DMT and yep. the different forms in which they can be ingested. I, I think, um, you know, there's different forms. DMTs in ayahuasca, there's DMT in um, free, you know, free base DMT, which is smoked. Um, you have 5-MeO-DMT, which is found in the poison of the Sonoran uh, toad, uh, which you can also smoke. Each of these, ex- I think it's the Sonoran toad, each of these experiences give you a different insight. Mm-hmm. And the key part about ayahuasca is that it is, you know, it's many different things. For me, it was an experience that developed my self-awareness and it is in no part um, recreational but it is therapeutic um, and I guess to answer your question um, you know one of the things that I was struggling with prior to going you know and even afterwards to, to an extent um, was you know my, my relationship with my family managing resentment towards them for forcing me to do something I didn't want to do um, and you know, completely unable to see why they did that at the point of me going there. And uh, you know, it, it allowed me to see different people's perspective and have empathy for them. But you know, the key experience was with my mother. Um, so you know, I had a difficult relationship with her, and. We had three ceremonies on consecutive nights, and the first ceremony I came to the appreciation that I hated her, and it was um, as if a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. This emotion had enveloped me, but I hadn't identified it. Mm. And you know, I ask, is this sort of ceremony in the space that I was? It's almost like one limb is in this world and one was in another, so you can <laughs> interact with the experience. And I asked, you know, why do I hate her? But the answers wouldn't come up. So then I go to this the second ceremony, and um, I wake up and or actually fell asleep after I ingested the tea, um, and then woke up and I was shaking like I was having a seizure. I didn't know who I was, where I was, what I was doing. I thought I was insane and there were these occasional words that would come to me that were in relation to what my identity was um, but I couldn't quite piece it together until I started focusing on my breath and started meditating and then when I started meditating I saw a vision that I guess could be described like a dream in which I was an embryo inside my mother and then could compare the energy of myself as that embryo compared to the energy of me on the map. Wow. Under the influence of the dream. Wow. Um, and then went forward in time and saw what I felt at that point was 
repressed memory in which when I was, I think, three or four, things that mum would do to me that explained why I hated her. And then following that, I went forward um, in time and um, saw myself holding my daughter. Wow. Um, so that was a lot. And then I guess that the key part of all of this was the third ceremony when I saw the whole ceremony from my mum's perspective and, uh, you know, living with me, my brother and my dad, I developed a love and you know, empathy and compassion for that I never had before. And the key of all of that was that I needed to see each of those experiences in that order for me to get to the point of having that compassion. Mm-hmm. And there's an intelligence associated with it which is ineffable. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's that's truly incredible. Obviously, quite a few, <laughs> quite a bit going on there, man. Yeah, and, and you know, you you said what felt like a dream, dreamlike state, and I find uh, dreams very curious part of the human mind. And personally, when I do uh, have extremely vivid, vivid memory uh, dreams, I tend to rather than analyze the content of the dream to observe uh, the way I feel when I awake. Um, And I think that's been a really interesting way to interpret the dreams because I have no longer been fixated or trying to translate what's going on in there. Um, And, you know, you're obviously in a, in a pretty crazy state there. Like that's, that's a unique state. Um, So, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you differentiate between I am dreaming and, you know, you you mentioned that state of potentially being insane. You know, you get to a page, a part where your brain's pretty much like a puddle and Mm. it's like I am nowhere, Mm. but I'm also everywhere. It's, (laughs) um, I respond to the part about dreams first. It's, there's a, um, a psychiatrist by the name of Carl Jung who um, is an absolute genius. You know, he's passed away now, but he was a genius. Um, and he spoke about dreams in a way that they are the only unadulterated messages from your subconscious mind. There's no cognitive interpretation of that material happening in the time when you experience it. Now, the difficulty that you face is how do you analyze something that often or can feel or seem completely beyond the realm of meaning? And I can completely appreciate why um, interpreting these dreams through emotion, how you're feeling once you wake, is you know an important way to interpret it because you can get lost in the analysis. Mm. You mm. really can. Who knows if it's this or if it's that. Mm. With regards to the um, the being here and being nowhere and also being everywhere, I think you know it's interesting. Before I went away for this experience, the ayahuasca, I was um, a strict materialist, and what I mean by that is that. I had no spiritual belief. I thought the world was completely material. Um, 
I was probably an atheist, maybe an agnostic, but following that experience, I got the distinct sense that consciousness doesn't cease to exist when we die. Um, That's really powerful. Well, it, it almost, you know, you could channel this energy where, or this wavelength where you could sense the consciousness of everything around you, whether it be the people in the room, the plants, the animals in the Amazon, um, and being able to interact in that way with that energy was uh, perhaps something that we haven't evolved to interpret in our day-to-day lives because mm-hmm. it would affect our ability to um, hunt, to, to gather, to actually survive against the suffering that is existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes down to the question of what it means to be fitting, what is being, mm-hmm. what is it to be alive. And um, I think once you, or at least some people that have a spiritual practice or outlook, seem to feel that um, perhaps our mind is in some way an expression of the universe or a way in which we can communicate with the universe or you know, something that is beyond our understanding at this point, mm. but something that we can feel. And sort of goes without saying that the ego plays a huge role in that inability to connect with all living things or otherwise said into being. Um, do you think that played a big role for you whilst you were experiencing that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's important to say before I go into that why, you know, there's the psychoanalytical definition of what ego is you know, from a Freudian perspective, but I guess in the way that I'm describing it, or the way that I you know, am expressing it is um, my own reflection of myself based on my memories and the image I have in my mind of who I am. And at times through life, people's egos can be very different to who they actually are as a person. And that fracture of who you actually are and that ego can sometimes get so wide that you don't know who it is that you actually are. And I think what's key following these experiences is trying to um, bring my ego and my true self, authentic self, as close to po- close as possible, as close as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I can understand why the ego has why we have an ego. I can appreciate that from a survival point of view, in terms of in terms of you know evolutionary science. Um, we've needed the ability to reflect on our memories and actions so we can recall things, so we can um, survive. But, you know, there's an interesting... Um, John Danaher said this, and he said it really well. He's um, a world-class jiu-jitsu expert. And he said that throughout time, there's been a, you know, this division in history. There was a point in which our primary focus was survival and then humans learned through societies through technology through um i guess those two main things that you know it was sorry through those two things we got to a point where our survival was more or less guaranteed depending on where you're in the world but for a lot of people survival was more or less guaranteed then what does the question of life become what is the meaning of life and I think that struggle, that question, is what a lot of young people are dealing with today. 
Um, and I think the spiritual outlook really helps mm-hmm. um, bring contentment when you have that outlook, when you have this outlook on what it is to be alive, what is it, what is the meaning of being here. Mm-hmm. It's a serious question to to delve into on on a personal note. Um, you know, to to take time away from the fast-paced world that we live in, and to settle and ask yourself, it's it's empowering. Um, and from my point of view, uh, my first experience or uh, exposure, rather, to what you were talking about now in terms of spirituality um, was when you gifted me The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. You know, it probably took me eight months to read because I was shocked so many times where I just had to put the book down and and collect my thoughts. Um, I sort of felt like whilst reading that, it made so much sense Um and I was sort of putting pieces together in my mind, but that was also a roadblock that I was experiencing at the time. I was, you know, living in my mind. Um, and that's actually something that you spoke about a little bit earlier as well. So, you know, since then I've obviously been reading a lot, experiencing, and I think that's that's the key point here. It's experiencing. Um, I feel like that is the best way to learn rather than any theoretical or uh, content can give you um, to be able to experience and to live um, in, in that way is the most powerful way to learn. Um, so is there anything that you wanted to touch touch on that? Look, I think um, oh, well, I, I certainly agree with you that the power of experience in um, developing our understanding of self is key. You know, that can't be done theoretically. But perhaps it can be done, but I think it's more efficient through experience, having experiences that change your perception of what it means to be alive, change your perception of who you are. I think well, it probably needs to be said from my point of view that I think a balance of experience and I guess not theoretical knowledge, but you know, throughout time, people have been asking this question: you know, what it means to be alive, the meaning of existence, and there is something to be said for measurable consistencies and what has been learned in the past that um, perhaps I don't want to make the same mistakes that people. 500 years ago may perform. I guess is an easy way to say things. And then someone else may say, well, how do you know that's a mistake? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we've just mm-hmm. seen things differently and we're learning new things. Um, it's, I think finding that balance for each person is an individual thing, but I do agree with you that the value that is put on experience is perhaps... And under undervalued, it's probably undervalued in our society. Oh well, you know, you, just your profession in general. Um, going from obviously studying at uni to being an intern to you know, practitioner work. Um, I appreciate you know you've got other things going on during uni, 
when the theory is going on and it's obviously a, a you know, major part of the foundation. But personally, where do you think your most growth came in, in your industry? Oh, without a doubt, it was whilst I was working. Yeah. You know, without a doubt. And I, and I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. Mm. You know, you're sort of practicing or whatnot, you're reading up on how do I do this, how do mm. I do that. But it's not until you actually do it. Yeah. You know, and I find that um, weekly when I am coaching at Old Scotch, um, I'll, you know, we come in after a drill, explain what was good, what can we work on, and then we go on to the next drill. And before we go into the next drill, I briefly summarize what's happening and, and I have a look at everyone and everyone's like, mate, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> and it's only until we go out into the drill that everyone's like, oh, okay, I get it now. You know, it's, it's not that hard. Um, but you explain it and it's just like, mate, I've got no idea. <laughs> I hear the Collingwood jobs open. Someone, someone give uh, Dimitri a notice. We'll, uh, give out his phone number at the end of the chat. Uh, no, I think there's some uh, fantastic candidates. Hopefully, um, gets filled. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the coaching is. I'm. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm. I'm loving it. Mm. Um, you know, it's obviously. I think my fifth year in some coaching mm. coaching role. You know, whether it's been Women's footy, which I've, you know, really enjoyed probably the most so. Mm. Um, you know, done a few junior teams and now this is my second men's team. Um, and, yeah, as I said, I really enjoyed doing it. And the main the main reason behind that is because it's such a unique environment where you get to unify, you know, 30, 35, 40 boys three times a week mm. or in our case twice a week. Um, and to be incongruent with that many people is, it's powerful and it's so evident on game day when you're not, when you verse teams, when you're a little bit off. Um, and that's usually comes from disconnection between the team. Um, and especially the level that I'm coaching this year, um, you win games on connection, not on skill, not on tactics. It's, is everyone on the same page here? Um, is everyone backing each other up? I don't mean that figuratively, but, you know, actually... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, made it a game changer, and that's what I love most about coaching. Well, I, I think there's something to be said about the experiences that one has increasing their ability to form relationships and build relationships and build bonds with people. And when you're the coach of a footy team, um, you're a leader in some sense, and mm. you certainly... Um, set the culture, you set the standard. Mm. And when you're the type of person that can build relationships on an individual level, um, I think your ability to do that increases through experiences that put yourself out of your comfort zone where you develop more self-awareness, yep. um, where you draw yourself closer to that authentic self. Mm. Um, so it's certainly no surprise to me that it's something that's come quite naturally to you. Yeah, well, on, on the personal level, like I absolutely love rocking up to training and no matter if they're in the team that I coach or a different team, you know, you get around, how you going, you know, what's going on, how's your body. I love those individual chats. Um, I think where I can certainly improve, you know, we've got a month left of footy and then, and then finals, um, I think where I can really improve in that role is to sort of step up uh, – in front of everybody together. Like, I feel like I've sort of been a little bit lackluster in terms of my motivation on game days beforehand, and it's sort of 
reflected in our first quarters. Um, but it's something that I've noted probably two weeks ago and it was probably a nice two weeks off during that COVID break to sort of reflect and be like, okay, you know, there's there's a fair bit riding on me as a coach here to get not only the boys up and about, but, you know, to, as we spoke about, to get that connection flying. And um, from my perspective, my connection with each individual and team is fantastic, but I need to foster the rest of that. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I love coaching, but in the scheme of things, I think something that's probably more suited to me if I'm to stay in a footy environment is more of like a GM of a, of a footy club. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily love like the game day, um, you know, things like mm. tactics and that type yeah. of stuff. It's not yeah. something that really like evokes passion from me. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess as you get exposed to a certain area, you learn what it is that really lights that fire within. Mm. Um, and you can only learn that, as you said earlier, through experience. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Through um, trial and error, really. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Is there anything that you've been sort of working on the side outside of uh, work or...? Um, well, I, I guess, you know, one of my passions or perhaps passion is a strong word, but, you know, one of, perhaps the reason that I went into psychiatry, which is my area of speciality, um, was because I saw, I saw that there was potential for people to improve their experience of life through certain medicine, through psychedelic medicine that wasn't being utilised um, in a Western context mm-hmm. with mental health issues. And I went into psychiatry because I like to form bonds with people to learn about people, to ask them questions about who they are. Why are you here in this particular situation me right now? What has happened in your life that has caused you to be in this moment? And why are we sharing this moment? I think that's fascinating for each person. Everyone's got an incredible story. And what I found was that contemporary medication, particularly psychiatric medication, um, I had I have some difficulty in accepting that that should be the only option for people when we haven't delved into you know the research of psychedelics um, purely because of stigma. Mm. Um, so I thought that I would go into um, psychiatry and hopefully become involved in this area. And you know, one of the things that I am working towards now is um, commencing a PhD in a couple of years that would be focused in this area. It's been really exciting to see a real um, uh, splurge of uh, resources from the federal government into research in this area. Monash, where I'm working now, they're doing a um, an MDMA for PTSD study, the PTSD study that starts in the next few months. Nice. Um, so it's exciting to see the ball rolling, um, and ultimately, the most important thing is how do we improve someone's quality of life? How do we improve their experience of what it means to be alive? And you know, the research that's come out so far has been um, 
incredible. And I'm just really excited about the potential for people to live more content lives um, and be able to see this meditation. Mm. Mm. That's super interesting, man. Super interesting. Is there any um, specific type of medicine that you're referring to? Well, um, I guess a lot of the research that's been happening um, now um, is surrounding psilocybin. Okay. Um, so psilocybin um, is the hallucinogenic component of uh, magic mushrooms. Um, there was a lot of research that went into LSD from the 1950s to the 1970s, um, and then that was brought to a halt by Richard Nixon. Yes, yes. Um, research and also the recreational use of psychedelics. Um, but it was only in the early 2000s where um, a man by the name of Roland Griffiths of John Hopkins um, reignited you know, research into psychedelics. Um, so it's really been a renaissance. And over the last 15 years, it's been building, it's been building. As you can imagine, when something with such stigma, mm-hmm. it's been slow. Yep. Um, but it's been, you know, it's a snowball, snowball effect. The reason that psilocybin has been used um, as opposed to LSD is because, um, one, there's not that same stigma with between acid or LSD, and two, the, the duration of action, you know, acid tends to last 12 to 14 hours, whereas psilocybin can be used, sorry, sort of last six to eight hours. So for a therapeutic session, for, you know, in a clinical setting, it's much more feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, are similarly effective mm. um, and at present they're using that for treatment resistant depression there's research studies in that man whoever called it acid really cooked it <laughs> <laughs> I can remember the first time that I heard about it and I didn't even know what it was but I just knew it was called acid and from that moment I had this fear of it and I was like no I'm never going to do that it's acid and it's crazy I mean little did I know it was bright but I mean, crazy in a different way uh, and so um, what are the main sort of behavioural changes that you see uh, before and after a dose of psilocybin? Like what's... It's a really good question. Um, so I, I think it needs to be um, made clear that I guess in the medical setting we're giving people you know, these research studies psilocybin if they have a particular, um, I guess, mental issue or mental illness. Um, so they research people with existential dread who have end-of-life cancer diagnoses. They, as I said, treatment uses in depression. One of the things that's incredible is that across the board, irrespective of who the person is, um, there tends to be a increase in openness. So when I say that, what I mean is that in modern psychology, they have an ocean model of personality and there's five um, domains of varying amounts in each person. So you have O is openness, C is conscientiousness, E is extroversion, A is always the one, um, A and N are always the ones that... So basically, so A is, um, O is openness. So after psilocybin experiences... Um, people increase in openness following mm-hmm. the experience. Um, and, you know, that's quite interesting with regards to how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive other people. Um, 
Sorry, so A is agreeableness and N is neuroticism. So yep. openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Um, and I think that's quite incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's just from a single dose, did you say? Yeah, that can yep. be from a single dose. So yep. that's measurable differences in openness. I, I can't um, uh, quote you how long after yep. the um, experience, but one of the interesting thing that, things that Roland Griffiths noticed in uh, John Hopkins was that you know there were sustained differences following psilocybin experiences weeks, months after the experience. Wow. And, um, you know, that raises questions in itself. Mm. Why is there this sustained difference mm. in how someone perceives in, in their experience of what it means to be alive? Totally. Um, very different to taking a pill each day to treat you for depression by increasing the serotonin that's oh. in your uh, synapses. So um, it's a completely different approach to treating. Um, and, you know, perhaps pre-ayahuasca, post-ayahuasca, the way that in which I've um, changed with, with regards to my outlook. Mm. Mm. Man, openness is a, is a huge one, obviously. You just sort of touched on it um, with psilocybin experiences, but, you know, in our everyday lives, openness is, I think, an extremely underrated attribute. Um, you know, let's just, for instance, sake, use a current example of uh, what's going on with COVID and mm-hmm. understanding other people's, um, you know, experiences, views, etc. And, you know, we, on a larger scale, you're sort of looking at religion and things like that where, or nationalism, where... You know, there's been so much, you know, on a large scale wars or discontentment between groups or individuals, in my opinion, due to a lack of openness or understanding of the other. So, you know, when we tend to identify uh, with something in terms of an ideology or a concept or anything of, of that sort, we tend to feel like that's part of who we are. And when somebody has a difference in opinion, um, it's almost like they're attacking us personally. Yeah. Um, and rather, it's you know, it's okay to have obviously an opinion and a concept on the way you think things are running, but where the big issue is is the identification with that um, and the lack of openness to other things. Um, and I, I find that really interesting in our everyday life because at the end of the day, like, who gives a shit if this bloke has a different opinion to what I do? Like, that's fine. You believe that, I believe this, we can still get along, you know. And I, I find in many circumstances in my life so far that it's been a major cause of fragmentation. And fragmentation is what really pisses me off, <laughs> in I, short. Fair <laughs> um, I, I think the question needs to be asked, why do people act in this way? Why do people act in a way that... <clears throat> Why do they act in a way in which they feel like they need to prove to other people that they're right? Mm, mm. And I think that being right gives people a sense of feeling good about themselves mm. and feeling like they're important. Mm. But that stems from a lack of self-awareness, I think, and not understanding yourself truly to, you know, not truly understanding yourself because if you if you're comfortable within who you are mm. 
then you're also comfortable with being wrong mm. because part of being comfortable within who you are is also appreciating the limitations mm-hmm. and appreciating that we have so much to learn from them, from those around us. And, you know, a big part of openness in the way that I've developed is an understanding that everyone has, everyone's in their position in life, wherever they are, because of their life experiences. And everyone's on their own journey. And everyone is going to have a different perspective on what it is to be right. Yeah. Based upon their life experiences. If you think about it practically, how, how is it that we acquire knowledge? How is it that we acquire what it is that we know? We have experiences through life and our mind builds associations with experiences that we have in relation to previous experiences that we've had. Mm-hmm. So we can t- continue to build a chain associating information that we learn with stuff that we already know. Yeah. And that is why people have a different perspective because their life has been completely different. Mm. And understanding that someone has, you know, maybe objectively incorrect, but you can also understand that why they see things this way. Um, and, you know, that openness to be okay with that brings a lot of contentment. It, it does because mm. you're not concerned about being right or wrong. Mm. Um, so it just is. Yeah. Well, that's a big thing, man. I, personally, I don't think anyone is ever right or wrong. It's just their interpretation of their life experiences. So for me to say the way you view topic A is wrong, it's just it doesn't make any sense to me. Like I appreciate, you know, in a conversational sense where I'm going with that is a little bit off, but at the end of the day, it's the same with good and bad. Like it just is. It's just the way it is. Like it's not something mm-hmm. to be labelled and um, sort of put in this bubble of yeah, I'm right, and to fill my whatever you want to call it ego or whatever it is. It's just I don't know. It's, I feel like it causes a lot of fragmentation. I it's really, a, I really it certainly do. Does. It certainly does. I think as a society, it's, it's a um, a challenging balancing act because there are things that are known and perhaps in time we'll learn more information and they'll be corrected. For example, we know that we know mathematics and we know that that's quantifiable and measurable um, but that's quite a different realm and we know that people can be wrong in a mathematical equation or say physics but in terms of experience um also in terms of how people view morality and how other people are acting and whether that is moral or amoral. That is a matter of perspective. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think um, perhaps it's relative. I think there are moral truths. There are some moral absolutes. You could argue which ones they are, for example. It is wrong to kill someone who is wrong to rape, for example. They're moral truths. Mm. Um, but the reason that we can live within a society in which there is relativism in the sense that everyone can be everyone's perspective of reality is true is because we live within a society in which the framework is within these moral absolutes Mm. where the framework of 
no, you cannot steal. steal. No, you cannot steal. Because these absolutes are perhaps not steal, but um, because these absolutes are in place, we can then have relativism within that absolute. Mm. Mm. No, I see what you're saying. And look, even if you go to that extreme case of, you know, killing somebody, mm. right? Like, you, me, anyone listening to this podcast, obviously in line with that. If we put it into perspective, like, let's go to somewhere, let's just say in Africa. You know, my mom, my dad have been kidnapped, killed in front of me, whatever you want to say, and my sister's been sold into slavery. And I've been abducted into a rebellion at a young age. Yeah. For me, killing someone is pretty normal. But, but, the, but the barometer for what is right and wrong isn't within each mind. It's separate to that. It, I guess in the, in the way that I see things anyway. It is normal. But is that the ideal? Is that... Oh, abso- absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mm. I think what is... I guess in the way that I see things, and this is certainly not how it's always been, and perhaps we have this conversation, you know, in two years' time, maybe my views will change. Mm. But um, at this point, you know, the barometer for what is morally correct is outside, and is deemed outside from within the mind. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. It's 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 an interesting, you know, you bring him back to... Um, something that I found quite interesting when I did my um, Vipassana and some of the um, philosophy that was taught there. And it was something that I found quite interesting and perhaps it hasn't been something that stuck with me but in terms of how it changed my behaviour. But one of the things that um, Goenka mentioned in his talk was that we are the only species that have the ability to be empathetic and do good for other people. Dharma is the concept. So that is what we should be focusing on because that is what separates us from animals. Mm. That act of giving for the sake of giving. Um, And I guess what ties into that is not taking the life of an animal because you don't need to, um, because we can survive. Um, And I I think that's a really powerful concept um, and makes sense to me. Um, and it is really interesting to see how kindness reverberates mm-hmm. um, and costs us nothing. It might bring a smile to someone's, someone's face and may, may be more inclined to be kinder to the people that they see and, you know, yeah. That's potentially an antidote for the fragmentation we're speaking Yeah, of. man. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, man. Um, I've come across that a fair bit recently, and a word to sum that up is, is into being. Um, something that I am, you know, extremely conscious of, and like, I'll just give you a little example, you know. Um, the ability to negate or sort of observe negative energies within not negate to observe negative energies and to sit with that um so then when you do come across mom dad brother sister at home you're not met with this you know 
ferocious negative energy and you, sometimes you don't even have to say anything you know a parent walks in and a mate walks into a room it's like fuck he's in a bad mood man i don't he didn't even have to say anything mm-hmm. right people can feel that and they might not even think that but they can feel that and then that's what creates a little bit of fragmentation so if you are able to sit with these negative emotions and observe without any judgment there's a dissolve of that and it gives you the ability to to present with humility and love joy and happiness so when mom or dad or brother and sister come into the room it's like cool you know there's there's a connection here you know they then go off they're driving to work i'm in a good mood here you know son's in a good mood you know we've had a really nice conversation you he goes to work and then the 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 energy is passed on and you know you can you can follow that cycle for forever there's no beginning, there's no end of that. Mm. But you personally have the ability to change that energy mm. and that's cool, man. That is really cool. It certainly is. Um, I'd be interested to know the way in which you're describing that way of being. I imagine channeling that state was in some way influenced by the power of now. It really does speak to our one approaches their emotions mm. are there other things that you've done that have um perhaps augmented your ability to be in that space it's it's difficult for me to sum up because i feel as though for the last in particular 12 to 24 months have been on one side you know reading a lot of books in particular um, eckhart's collection john klein um and I've been listening to a lot of podcasts such as the Rupert Spira Show um, and also been doing practical work um, with Mark McGrath and Troy Simmons. Um, so the connectiveness of all those aspects in my life as well as um, practicing in my own space um, have sort of formulated the ability to do that. And probably ability isn't the right word because personally I believe it's it's possible for everybody because it's already within. You're just sort of unveiling the ability to do so. So the ability to be self-aware is, it's sort of a paradox because it's the easiest thing to do because you are it. But it's also the most difficult thing because we're constantly covered by information. Um, Do, Do you think that there's some people that do not have the ability to uncover the techniques to go on to a path of becoming more self-aware? I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that for anybody else personally. Mm. I think that just from my perspective, Mm. the dissolve of my ego Mm. was a huge step in that and i've obviously you know still got an ego etc etc but the ability to identify that and observe it without judgment i think anyone can do that and that's a that's a step in the right direction and it, and it breaks heaps of barriers man no i agree with you yeah i agree with you i think it's it's an impossible question to answer isn't it mm. you know, one of the things that i truly believe um is that The evolution of a species 
um, I guess I just want to start with that as a title. And you know, throughout time, we've been evolving. And I think our minds are evolving the way that we perceive ourselves and our environment is evolving. And what is a pro-evolutionary state? And what does that mean? And I genuinely think that a pro-evolutionary state is exactly what you're referring to, a state of greater self-awareness, a state of greater empathy, a state of greater dharma, you know, within the Buddhist context, um, doing good to people because we have the ability to do good because that feels right, perhaps not right, but feels fulfilling within us. Um, and I think encouraging that with the people around us, our friends, our families, is pro-evolutionary. Mm. Um, I think that is more likely to allow the human species to survive for longer than an ultimate uh, way of thinking, of mm. being. And it's incredible that that, is, that state of being is also the state that, I guess in my experience, has provided the, the most contentment. Mm. Mm. And and just on that, the ability to listen is something really powerful, really powerful. Um, I find that in observation and in silence, um, there has been so many openings that otherwise would not be possible. Um so I can't, I can't verbalize the importance of listening um, for me in the last 12, 12 to 24 months. I, I heard a, um, I read something recently that uh, was apt, and it was, when you learn to listen, everyone becomes a guru. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, there's, there's lessons everywhere to be learned, and like to the point where, when I listen and observe Jacks, my dog, man, he teaches me so much. He teaches me so much about myself. He teaches me about, you know, how animals interact, um, just general behaviors. And there's no verbal com- communication there, but man, I know what he's thinking. <laughs> you're his father. Of course you do. Of course you do. It's a sixth sense. No, but you're right, man. Like, there's, there's gurus everywhere. Everyone's, and I, I find a lot of, um, peace in my gardening and, and, mm. and plants. Um, and, dude, they, they teach me a lot about organic growth. Um, you know, everything is as it should be, and it's, it's a pure reflection of the energy that you're providing. Um, you know, just recently I've had, uh, namely my girlfriend, Chelsea, but there's been a few people who have sent me messages on the Insta, um, on the gardening insta who have asked me to take care of their plants because um <laughs> they're not looking too healthy so um i've got a bit of a plant hospital upstairs to get some nice indirect sun up there um you're a man of, man of many talents man I, well as i said like i just love it it's it's a really nice respite and mm. it's peaceful um and that goes back to the interbeing mm. um being connecting to all living things so I'm perhaps going to take things in a different direction. Um, and I'm interested to hear, um, purely because this is an aspect of yours that I admire. Um, we've talked a lot about the 
perhaps for want of a better term, positive state of being, the things that we've experienced that have been beneficial to us. How is it that you respond to times of setback, you know, life, you know, the vicissitudes of life, there's always going to be lows. How is it that you respond to those lows when you appreciate that you're in, in that space, or how long does it take you to appreciate that you're actually low? Mm. Well, just that last bit, as I have matured, um, that time has taken significantly less less time. I have noticed that. Yeah. So, well, I'll, the one particular part of my life that sort of rings a bell as soon as you say that is, um, you know, year 10, 11, 12. Um, I was obviously very keen in playing footy, um, was making some decent inroads and, you know, three knee recos and the soft tissue injuries that came with that um, really set me back in what I thought I was here to do and as I said it took me three knee recos to realize that this isn't the path for me <laughs> so um, you know that that obviously took me probably five years to come to terms with because that was something that I had fixated on since I was four or five years old you know running around the house kicking the footy um, cheering Nathan Buckley on like that was that was what was in my mind for the best part of 15 years mm-hmm. so that's probably the part of my life that took the longest to come to terms with and when it did click for me my god it was incredible like an incredible release of emotion Mm. it really was um and it's led me onto the path that i am now so Mm. i couldn't be more thankful for that opportunity now to answer your question and, and what I do in these in these moments and I had one quite recently that I came to you about I don't know how long ago that was maybe a month or so ago where I said to you I was feeling this discontentment in my everyday uh, living you know there was sort of this emptiness feeling and I I didn't know what what it was causing it I didn't know I couldn't find any patterns like you know, it wasn't, I was spending time with this person or doing that and it was attributing to the way I was feeling and this genuine emptiness that I was feeling. Um, and I mentioned to you some behaviours that I was doing to fill that void, to try and cover up what that emotion was, was trying to tell me. And I think maybe it took me probably, uh, let's just say two weeks, um, maybe a little bit less, to observe and that's that's the way I work through it personally um there was a lot of silent meditation for me um standing and seated meditation and I think the observation was there but when the change in my behavior occurred was when I was writing things down um I've been writing a lot probably for the last uh 18 months and I've very rarely ever read what I what I write. It's sort of just written down and then you know, almost forgotten about. Um, but that's how I dealt with it. And you know, as I said, everyone's different, um, so I appreciate that. But I personally don't believe any discontentment in anyone's life can be, uh, let's just say, dissolved um, when there isn't any attention there. Um, where there is attention, there will often be growth or um something new will be learnt and 
at that time, I was doing things to cover up that empty emotion. Um, I stopped doing those things, you know, phone, eating, smoking weed, whatever it was, man. I just stopped it. Um, it was a complete halt. And every time that emotion rose of emptiness, I just watched it, closed my eyes. I asked myself some questions like, where is the feeling of emptiness? Why am I feeling this? And not necessarily asking the question to find an answer. It was just to pose the question there. Let's just see where I go. Um, I didn't identify with anything in that space. Um, so it was a pretty powerful time for me. And when I came to, let's just say, the end of that emptiness feeling, that two-week period, um, man, I just exploded. There were so many great things that were happening around me that I just put my head down and, and fucking went for it. Um, so I think that time of negativity, if we, if we call it that, was fantastic and I loved it and I wouldn't have changed that because it gave me a time to reset, retune with my body, where am I at? Um, and I learned a lot about myself during that time. It really is incredible because, you know, a two-week turnaround period when you're in a state of feeling low is, you know, almost unheard of. And I think a lot of people would continue in that state of stagnation because, you know, that's what that state of being tends to foster, but the ability to be self-aware and mindful is the key to getting yourself out of it. And, you know, it's something that I've struggled with and continue to struggle with. It's an ongoing battle. Um, but a way of thinking about it that I found quite helpful, um, I drew from um, probably one of my favourite books, which is um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist that lived through three separate concentration camps in World War II. And what he talks about is people and their outlook on life whilst they're in concentration camps and who are the people that had meaningful existences and who are the people that drew contentment from the situation that they were in. And what he distills is that the content of someone's character is dependent upon how they respond to setback and how they respond to situations of difficulty. And it's a technique that I've started to use when I speak to patients. And, um, you know, particularly you have people that are in, you know, really challenging situations and, you know, it's, it's humbling every day with the people you speak to. Um, but framing it in a sense that who is it that the person, you know, who is it that you are? How are you going to respond to the situation that you're in? Are you going to put your best foot forward? Because the thoughts that you have don't define you, it's the way that you act that mm. defines you. Um, and I thought that was quite a powerful message that was distilled quite simply, simply um, in an environment that is almost you know, symbolic for existence as a whole. Um, because in the way that I see things, life is suffering. And everyone is experiencing suffering in their own way. And what is the what's the answer to that? 
and to do the best that you can and continue to grow and get a better version of yourself. Oh man, well, as far as life experience goes, man, he's <laughs> he's clocked it. <laughs> well, who is it that you're referring to? Ah, uh, Victor. Yeah, he has. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, it's um, you know what he he wrote that book um whilst he was in a concentration camp, and then the manuscript for the book got taken from him. Wow, by an SS soldier, and then he wrote the book again. <laughs> Do you, know this, do you know how many times there are in this book in which there's people lined up in two columns, two rows, and he just happens to be in a row that doesn't go to the concentration, that doesn't go to the, man. however it is that they take their lives in that particular concentration camp. It's ridiculous. It is, man. It really um, is. And it sort of brings me back to um, something that Nietzsche came up with the historical sense mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that you know we've spoken about in the past um, and I guess we've alluded to throughout this conversation is a, perhaps a sense of discontentment throughout society um, in general you know, I think that's a, a growing um, sense particularly amongst young people but you know all people mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that also comes with regards to how our society is and comparing it to utopia and things that aren't the way that people think they should be and considering that injustice. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it is injustice in in particular situations. But to appreciate where we are and how it is that we live and why things are the way that they are, one must have a appreciation for the historical context which is what Nietzsche was alluding to. Because if you are just born into a particular point in history throughout history, you have no sense of where we've been. You don't think you're in absolute yeah. asylum. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, perspective. Yeah, seriously, man. Seriously. So, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on potentially breaking free of conditioning. Um, you know, we're, we're all conditioned to some degree growing up. Um, whether we like it or not, it's just the way we're raised. You know, we learn off our parents, we learn off you know, people at school, etc., etc. And um, it's an interesting concept of conditioning. And um, Jay Krishnamurti speaks about it quite a lot in his in his books and his talks. Um, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about conditioning and I guess breaking free from your conditioning. It's a really interesting concept. I think. Um... There's some conditioning I feel that we can't break free of that is so deeply embedded within us in the society that we live in that it is a part of who we are. Um, of course, perhaps if you went and lived as a monk or somewhere in the mountains and meditated all day and had food supply and didn't have to worry about your existence, then your ability to break free of your conditioning could be more challenging, but that's, for a lot of us, not the reality of what it is to be alive. Mm. I think in terms of breaking conditioning in the way that we perceive the world, things that stop us thinking are key. Um, And what I mean by that is 
practices like meditation and yoga and acupuncture. There's there's multiple different practices, but ultimately distilled to one sense of being present in that moment um, and a sense of awareness as opposed to a sense of thinking. Mm. And what that allows you to do, it builds a muscle, and also psychedelics for that matter. Mm-hmm. It builds a muscle, and what that muscle is, is your ability to reflect upon your thoughts without identifying with them. Mm-hmm. And once you build an ability to identify, to not identify with your thoughts and to appreciate them as just thoughts and not who you are, mm-hmm. um, then you begin to appreciate that a lot of what it is that we've done is because we're on autopilot just acting based on our thoughts and our thoughts are happening because we have had life experiences that have been, as I said earlier, interpreted in relation to our previous life experiences. Yep. So it's almost like it's predestined perhaps in a sense. Um, not that I believe in destiny, but you understand the point I'm trying to make. Yep. Um, so those sorts of things um, can break free of the conditioning. I guess more specifically about psychedelics, um, the powerful essence there is that they allow you to perceive reality in inverted commas, one of what is reality, whatever this is, from other people's perspectives. Yeah. And it, I guess it all comes back to appreciating that your perspective is not the only perspective that there's seven billion perspectives, how many lives, mm-hmm. how many people are alive in the world, and how many, even more than that, there's animals, there's mm-hmm. plants. I'm appreciate, appreciating that the only reason that you think that you are right, with your perspective, is your ego. Yep. Um, and that appreciation, coming to that understanding, is key to, it's the first step that needs to be made before you can break through your condition. Then regular practice whether it be meditation, whether it be regular yoga, whatever it may be that is right for you, can break free, break you free of that condition. Mm. Yeah, it's a very, very well formulated response. And I just, want, I just want yeah. to add to that. I, I think we are conditioned by our environments, and I think that it's really difficult, at least for me, it has been to break free of conditioning. Um, in an environment in which I, I guess if I continue in the same environment, if I go elsewhere and then have an experience and then continue in a similar environment, whereas say if I moved to India and practiced yoga mm. five times a week and I was living a very different life, it is much easier to be to break free of that conditioning because you're not. Um, exposed to those same environmental triggers that you would ordinarily in your mm. day life. Um, yeah. This this notion of practicing meditation, practicing yoga, something that I have been sort of wrestling with recently because, well, before I delve into that, what is meditation? Meditation is simply awareness. Mm-hmm. So if we just leave it at that, if we say meditation is awareness, is it possible to be constantly in meditation? It is. Yeah. But everyone's ability to channel that is different. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I would throw this word around a bit that I admire about you is your ability to be in a meditative state 
for as long as you are. Mm. And who knows why that is? Who knows? Mm. Um, but I guess the reason I use the term practice mm. is that I notice for myself that if I don't have a practice, then I start to slip with mm. regards to my ability to be aware. And then I'm far more in my mind. I it, it's a it's an interesting dichotomy because I get attached to my mind because I like the way that I think. I said this to one of the yoga teachers. At the, um, I went to a yoga teachers course a couple of years ago in India, and um, I was talking to the yoga teacher about the difficulties I was having with med- meditation practice. They were yep. teaching you a practice that just wasn't right for me. Yep. And she was like, "Well." She said, well, you're attached to your mind. I'm like, yeah, I know, I am, um, but I like it. <laughs> but um, I guess breaking free of that and yeah. having awareness, whether it be scanning your body, whether it be focusing mm. on the breath, um, you know, there's so many different types mm. of meditation, mm. sound meditation. Um, for me, when I don't have, oh, yoga is meditation. Yeah. Um, when I don't have that practice, you know, throughout my routine, mm. um, especially with emotional um weight that seeing a few patients a day with yep. the experiences that they have if I don't have that practice in my day to day then I really do slip yeah I appreciate um, that yeah yeah I certainly do because like as I've mentioned to you um you know I had a weekly DNS class so mm-hmm. dynamic neuromuscular stabilization class which was my form of meditation mm-hmm. if you will um, and I asked myself a question, and this stemmed from, I believe it was the first and last freedom from Jay Krishnamurti. Mm. The question posed to myself was, what is the difference between me finding solitude in that moment versus somebody who needs to go to the pub on a Friday night after five days week, five days of work a week, um, and that's how they find their way of sort of releasing their emotions. So what is the difference there? You know, from the outset, one's seen as pon as a, you know, wholesome way to approach life, one isn't so. So, you know, that's sort of where the, the trail of thought begun. And the result of that was me uh, stopping going to Wednesday night classes on a routine basis because I found, and again, this is just a thought that if my practice was coming from a discipline sort of viewpoint, then it wasn't coming from freedom. And that's how I see myself, free. Um, and I find discipline is, you know, extremely effective in our everyday lives. And, you know, I've benefited very well in my life having good discipline. Um, but that notion of being disciplined to be aware just was a bit of a contradicting statement for me mm. and it's something that I question myself about and um, you know now I'm very irregularly going to classes whether it be yoga or whatnot mm. um, and I find that this practice in inverted commas is happening for me you know most hours a day yeah. you know whether I'm going for a walk or talking to dad or reading a book or whatever it is it's it's always happening and that's why I asked you, um, what is meditation? Because I personally don't think that 
it can be justified in just like this is a practice. It's just a way of living. I, I agree with everything you said. You leveled up. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I um, there's an interesting. Um, it was another thing that was said in the past where they talked about um, different people in their lives and people's ability to become monks. I believe mm-hmm. I hope I don't butcher the story too much. But the point was that it is incredibly difficult for a working person um, to become a monk um, because there are the rigors of society and the life that we have. Um, and, you know, a lot people need to go to work, people need to um, develop, you know, raise finances so they can support themselves to exist. Um, and having a space to channel um, in that sense can sometimes be because of you know, a state of privilege, mm-hmm. um, a state of being in a fortunate situation where you have the time, the capabilities, the environment to channel that. Um, I, I, yeah. I, f- I found it interesting because um, if you have, how do I say this? I think it's much more, I think it's much easier for someone who is incredible. Let me just raise this. I'm interested to mm. hear your, your thoughts on this. Do you think it's easier for someone who has a spiritual outlook that has um, incredible financial backing to get to a state of um, greater self-awareness and enlightenment um, compared to someone who doesn't have that financial backing and has to work consistently to try and feed themselves. You know, there's, there's definitely a tipping point where you're comfortable to a point in which you can access these things on a day-to-day basis because it's incredibly difficult to be aware in that way with a lot of jobs that people do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would certainly. Mm. And I only agree with that is because I've lived those mm. two examples. Mm. Um, the time that I spent living in the Gold Coast, um, although it was like a wholesome way of living in terms of, you know, my circadian rhythm was fucking bang on. Um, you know, I was in the water, mm. you know, two, three times a day. Exercise was fantastic. Mm. And it was all coming from a place of freedom, which was fantastic. But tan was looking good. Tan was looking good. That's the... Uh, the natural European <laughs> oliveness. <laughs> um, you know, that was all great. I was living that. But the fact that I had, you know, rent to pay, had to pay for food, etc., etc., uh, meant that I had to work, you know, four or five days a week, which uh, my focus at that time was not delving into myself, my awareness. Well, that's poor, poor, poor phrase, but you know what I'm trying mm. to say. Um, and then contrary to that, move back home so you don't have, you know, X, Y, Z bills. Mm. Um, you know, you're obviously working and whatnot, but there is not that added pressure um, coming externally. So, um, yeah, it's freed up a lot of energy that allows me to embark on that. Well, you know, I think that's well said. Um, and one of the things that I've reflected upon is how have I been able to 
I guess, be in a situation where I can access these experiences that I've touched on. Mm. And, you know, very little of that has anything to do with me. Yep. You know, a lot of that has to do with the situation that I've been born into. Um, and, um, you know, the ability for my parents to, I guess, force me, you know, force me to do medicine and then come to a point where I resented them and then get to a point of finding psychiatry, which I'm truly passionate about, but I never would have found psychiatry without my parents forcing me <laughs> to do that. Um, but then the ability to go to Peru with the ayahuasca, the ability to work for six months and then take six months off so that I can do yoga teacher's course and, you know, the Vipassana, mm-hmm. the ability for me to put myself in a space of time where I can experience these things is only because I have the ability to support myself in that yeah. sense. Um, and that is privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, I, I never, I didn't always appreciate this. And it ties back into trying to become more self aware. Um, because it's very, it would be easy for some people to, to think you're the man. And this, you know, we all know someone like that, but you know, perhaps they're in a situation because their parents have been quite uh, stable. And then they think that the reason that they're in that situation is because they got to get um, struggled with people like that. <laughs> Yeah. And at the same time, as I said earlier, you know, you, you understand why people are in this yep. situation. You know, spot on, spot on. So, um, hey, it's the same as raising a dog. There's no such thing as a bad dog. It's always the owner. There's well, no such thing as a bad dog. Mm. <laughs> well, it's you know, it's funny that you say that because the more that I speak to patients and the more that I hear about backgrounds and life experiences and what's happening with other children. Yep. Some of these stories, you know, if you put this in a movie and then put this person's life, you know, put any person's life, particular person's life and the troubles that they've faced in a movie, you know, a lot of people are like, no, this is it's too made up, you know, it's fictitious. Well. Wow. And these are stories that, you know, people don't hear of. You know? mm-hmm. um, there's everything, everything you'd be grateful for. And, you know, that's an emotion that we haven't touched on that encompasses everything that we've spoken about. Gratitude. gratitude yeah. Um, and I think gratitude is an antidote for a lot of seeds of anxiety and depression. And one of my experiences is that through meditative practice, whatever that may be, particularly after the ayahuasca, even after the yoga teacher's course, even after the pasana, mm. the emotion that beamed out of me the most was gratitude. Um, whenever I channel a state of gratitude, um, that's one of the best versions of myself. Can you give me an example of channeling gratitude? <clears throat> well, I, I guess just appreciating the, the miracle that is life, mm-hmm. the miracle that we are here, and not attempting to make the next step into the meaning of why we're here, but appreciating just in that moment the beauty of uh, this and it's interesting that certain forms of meditation for me have allowed me to channel that more for example transcendental meditation really does um, allow me to garner that sense of gratitude within myself 
perhaps to a greater deal than other Parsno practice does. Mm-hmm. But I remember walking out of the jungle after the ayahuasca room. I was just beaming with um, thanks for all those around me for the ability to have experiences for my family, for my brother, yep. for my friends, for the teachings that I've learned. Um, and that's another thing that sort of varies in terms of its intensity with mm. the lens through which I experience life. Um, but if there was more gratitude in the world, the world would be a better place to simply that. Yeah. Yeah, well said, for sure. And and just another thing that goes on that is acceptance. I feel like it's a super underrated part of living. Um, you know, we go out go about our daily lives and you don't often get a time to reflect, but the times that of times of hardship for me when there's been acceptance of that, there's there's major breakthroughs that happen. Um, not pushing the emotion down, not pushing this away. It's like embracing, embracing that. Like, yeah, I feel like a piece of shit today. That's fine, man. You mm. feel like that, you feel like that. The worst thing that you can do is judge yourself for feeling like that. Um, so, you know, did, did, did that come up for you during those times, acceptance? I, without a doubt, it has. And I think to move on past a challenging emotion, acceptance, yeah, is integral. Yeah, um, you can't move through, you can't move past a, a difficult emotion without accepting. Yeah, why it is there, um, and it's amazing how following acceptance, whether you're angry, jealous, how it seems to um, shrink with regards to its intensity, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, it's interesting because when you try and, you know, in the past when I've espoused, you know, acceptance to people, it, it can be difficult for people if they're not already mindful to a degree. Yep. Um, and there's a reason that for people with addiction issues, acceptance is a key part of moving past that addiction mm-hmm. issue, accepting, yes, I am addicted, yes, I'm relying on this particular substance. Um, and that's the first step. Mm. But like even, you know, that, that happens in everyday life. Like I'm not addicted to my phone. You know, I don't unmindfully eat. And that, that's actually, let me touch on that. I've been questioning myself how often I mindfully eat and it's not much. And it's something that I really am observing um, when there's times that I'm eating by myself. Um, am I on my phone? Am I watching TV? Am I, you know, walking around eating a sandwich? And um, something that keeps coming up and it's pretty interesting. And um, I think it's a it's a beautiful time. To be able to eat three times a day is something that's taken for granted um, in my perspective. And to then not even acknowledge that I'm eating and be grateful for that is something that I, I think that can really be opened up there. Mm. You know, it's I really struggle with eating mindfully. And I don't think I've ever done it. Yeah. I mean I have an interesting relationship with food. <laughs> so I just don't eat that much. Area for me to, you know, channel mindfulness with mm. um, or awareness with. Mm. Bringing a mindful state of being within more activities of your day-to-day mm. you know, be beneficial. Yeah. 
Hey, uh, it's been incredible sharing the space with you today. Um, you know, hopefully we, we get another episode in the not too distant future. Um, so thank you for your time and we'll see you next time. Yeah, mate, Dimmy, I've just got to say it's been uh, a privilege being your friend over these last few years and the ability to hold or share space and communicate about these things is, uh, in my experience, has been more rare than I would like it to be. It's why I treasure our friendship. Thank you for the kind words, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. Uh, I hope to see you next week. Cheers.